Today I'm taking up 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's been several weeks since we were last in 1 Samuel. I want to remind you that the setting here is that the Philistines have invaded, they have occupied Israel. Israel is bound up in fear and is basically hiding from the Philistines, cowering under their rule. And in the first part of the chapter, Jonathan, moved by, uh, by an appreciation for God's honor and uh, appreciation and attention to God's word and his past faithfulness, Jonathan acts, makes himself available, and the Lord sends him against an outpost of the Philistines. And I'll be preaching from 15 through 23, but I'll, I'll start reading uh, back in verse, uh, verse 12. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came up, uh, came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. And the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the, the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Look especially at that last verse. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Confidence is a, is a funny thing, isn't it? In this passage, we have uh, confidence expressed by the Philistines in their military might that is evaporated in the midst of a panic. You have a confidence expressed by Saul in some what I've, uh, I've come to call his superstitious religion. But even that falls short of what is really taking place in this passage. 
there is a superior power at work in this passage, superior than the enemy that seems to be so mighty. In this case, the enemy seems to be, uh, is the Philistines and seems to be powerful, but confidence in power is misplaced. Our confidence reveals what you think is the most important or the most powerful. So today I intend to warn you against misplaced confidence by looking at this account of a battle that takes place where the enemy seems to be superior. But what the truth is that the Lord is supernatural and ruling over all. Begin by thinking about the misplaced confidence and military might that takes place. It's, it's really part and parcel of this passage. Speaking from a human perspective, we noted in the last uh, or in the first portion of this passage that that uh, Jonathan's attack doesn't make much sense from a military perspective. It seems a lot like uh, it sounds like it might be better suited for a Rambo movie than for a, an actual real military battle. Here is a, a, a superhuman fighting force who goes behind the enemy lines and wreaks havoc on the enemy, as if Jonathan were Rambo. Well, that's not Jonathan. Jonathan is not having any confidence in his military might, but he's also not afraid of the very obvious military might that the Philistines have. They very clearly have the upper hand. They have the, the high ground as well because it describes Jonathan and his armor bearer having to crawl up on hands and knees just to get to where the battle was. That was not a position of strength. Can you imagine the Philistines watching him come climbing up the hill and they're scratching their heads and say, what in the world is this guy doing? Doesn't he know he's outnumbered? Okay, well, here we go. But God was with Jonathan, wasn't he? And it describes the fact that as he reaches the top of that hill, that he is victorious in fighting against this outpost. The soldiers fall in front of him and his armor bearer so that 20 men are killed in short order. And then verse 15 tells how the report of this, this skirmish begins to spread throughout the camp of the Philistines. I wonder if, if any of the children or young people of the congregation have, have ever taken a rock out and thrown it into a nice, calm body of water, a lake or something like that. You know what happens? The the, the rock hits, and then the ripples expand out from where that, that rock hit. And there's something of the same effect happening here. The rumor of this defeat begins to spread and expand. And the text uses the word trembling here. It's a word that could be translated terror or panic. Panic. 
Have you ever been so afraid that you lose the power to rationally decide what to do? You are so overcome with that terror that you have no idea what to do and you begin to act irrationally. Well, that's something of what's happening here. A terror, a panic is coming upon the Philistines and it's a terror that is coming from the hand of God. He is the one using Jonathan to afflict this panic upon the Philistine armor. And it spreads rapidly across the camp. If you look at the verse and work right through it, there's a trembling in the camp, the field, and among the people. That seems to suggest the non-fighting force that would be assembled. An occupying army would have that. uh, the, the, The ones who are there to cook or to set up the... Uh, the tents or the weapons of war and things like that. They're not the fighting force. And so, well, small wonder that a battle that the Israelites win starts to make the non-fighting force afraid that they're going to die too. But the panic then infects the fighting force. The text goes on and says that the garrison and the raiders also trembled. These are the soldiers, the trained soldiers, the ones who were used to dealing out death around them. But now at the rumor of the Israelites' victory, they become fearful. And not only does God strike panic in their hearts by just the rumor of this uh, this attack, the Lord causes the earth to shake. The earth shakes in such a way that it says that uh, so it was a very great trembling. And it's an interesting phrase that's used there. It uses that word trembling once more, but it, it puts it, smashes another word on the front of it. It's a God trembling. Uh, either to say it was, uh, it was God's work or as the English translators are doing it, it's a, it's a God-sized panic. So the English translates it here, it was a very great trembling. What's, what he's getting at here is that, is that God is the source of this terror. He's making the hearts of the enemies to melt, both by the fear of an attack and by the shaking of the earth itself. The point is that God was obviously at work. Now, we have seen this before. I said that Jonathan was mindful of the ways in which God had acted in times past to bring deliverance. When we considered the first part of the passage, I related it back to, especially to how God delivered Israel through the hand of Gideon. A different army had invaded, a different enemy. The Midianites had come, a huge army, innumerable soldiers had horses and chariots. And God raised up Gideon and an army around Gideon. But that that army was too big, right? Too big to fight against 
thousands on the other side. And so God narrowed down Gideon's army so that it would be clear that the victory that came would be God's victory. Well, something very similar is happening here. It is the Lord who gains the victory here through the faith and the work of Jonathan. Jonathan was faithful and made himself available, and through that the Lord brought a a great panic, a trembling of God on the Philistine soldiers so that they ran away. In fact, their fear was so great that they began to fight against each other, using their weapons not against the Israelites, but against their fellow man. Let's pause and consider. It's always important to understand a passage in its historical setting. And in this setting, the nation of Israel had real military enemies. And the point that God is making in this historical setting is is a very pointed application that Israel should never trust in their weapons of war. It was not the way their deliverance would ever come. It is true that the Lord would use the means of an army that is raised up, but even when he did that, the victory always belonged to the Lord. And it would be crucial for Israel to know that because there were indeed very physical military enemies that they faced. They were a particular nation, and the Lord was working through them. So it would be tempting for them to take pride in the number of their soldiers or the, uh, uh, the chariots, the horsemen, the soldiers, the weapons that they could assemble to fight against their enemies. All the while, if they did that, their confidence would be misplaced. They would think the enemy to be superior and lose sight of Almighty God. Almighty God, who rules over all things. So God was warning the children of Israel not to trust in their weapons of war. He was teaching Saul as king not to take pride in his ability to lead an army or his strategies that he could come come up with. He must look to the Lord. Now, for Israel, the threat of enemy armies was very real and very physical. I'm going to guess that you probably don't have enemy soldiers camped outside your house on the other side of the street afflicting you. So it's appropriate to ask for us today, where is our confidence placed? And I'm reminded of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians when he acknowledges that we do live in a physical world, but he he says that the battle that we are engaged in is not a physical battle. 
we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. And it's appropriate for us in thinking of misplaced confidence that that God was warning Israel about to apply that to ourselves as well to say, have I placed my confidence wrongly? Have I lost sight of Almighty God and come to fear the enemy that seems to be superior around me? Have I lost sight of Almighty God and and assembled other things that I think will deliver me from from poverty, from deprivation, from the philosophical warfare that is waged against God and his church today, we can take a false confidence in our arguments, in our righteousness, in in our own power. And it's appropriate to stop and say, what is it that we think is most powerful? And in humility, make sure that we acknowledge that God on high reigns. The enemy may seem to be super, but God is over all. The scene now shifts from Jonathan and the the battle and the panic among the Philistines, and it goes back into the camp of Israel and to King Saul, Jonathan's father. And unfortunately, we find in King Saul that there is a continued misplaced confidence for Saul, and it's a misplaced confidence that has the trappings of religiosity It has the trappings of the true religion, but it is superstitious rather than genuine, heartfelt faith. And it comes through in his response to what he sees happening across the way as the terrifying army of the Philistines seems to be melting away and thrown into confusion. It is another moment for Saul where there is a crucial decision to be made. And as he makes that decision, where he turns is telling. The first thing he does is to try to find out the origin of the confusion of what's happening across the way. The the watchmen see that they're melting away, and so Solomon says, Call the roll. Find out if anyone is missing. And you have to think that in Saul's mind, there's, there's something of this, uh, uh, this desperate thought process that's going on. What's, what's going on over there? Has, has uh, someone, has there been a, a, a raiding force from our party that's gone over there and, and gained some victory? Well, let's number the people. Or, or maybe the Philistines are just faking this. You know, maybe they've set a trap, and if we attack, we'll, we'll walk right into it. They'll turn around, and they'll, they'll attack us. What is happening here? And here's where his superstitious nature comes, comes forward. 
when he finds out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are the only ones that are missing, and they see that, that there is confusion, Saul calls for the priest and the Ark of the Covenant. And unfortunately, this is not out of faith, but rather out of that superstitious trying to manipulate God to gain, gain his favor and blessing. This fits well with the earlier portion of this passage because Ahijah is one of the, well, is a grandson of Eli. I mentioned before that Eli was rejected by God because of his faithlessness. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, their abusing of their power and their position and the people around them. Well, here is another hereditary priest of a line that has been disowned or rejected by God. And this is the one that Saul entrusts with spiritual authority. This is the one that Saul has come and to be in his camp snubbing, deliberately turning away from Samuel. And Saul is hiding in the region where Samuel lived. He was right there. Saul could have turned to the prophet of God, the judge that the Lord had acknowledged he could have turned to Samuel and asked of him, what is the Lord's direction here? But no, he calls for Ahijah and for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought so that they might inquire of God. Now, that was a common practice. That was uh, something that the priests were instructed to do. And so on the outside, there is a show of religiosity but even before Ahijah can even complete asking God for direction, Saul stops him. He interrupts the process. And he says to him, withdraw your hand. Stop inquiring of the Lord. He doesn't say it so crassly. Doesn't that sound stupid? Stop inquiring of God. But that's what he was doing. Here is that, that, that pressing decision on Saul. And again, to be generous, it, this is a, a very hard situation. He's faced many, and he'll face many more. And as enemy attacks. As the enemy is in confusion, the sound of battle is growing. There's this sense in Saul that he has to act. And he turned first to this superstitious inquiring of God. And as the pressing nature of the situation continues to escalate, escalate he even turns away from that. Stop inquiring of God. 
withdraw your hand. And he assembles the army around him and they go to take action. Now God is merciful even here. As they enter into the fray, they find the Lord at work. It really is a panic. It isn't a trap. God was striking fear into the soldier's heart. And they had taken up the very weapons that they had, had, uh, had taken from the Israelites. And they were turning it on each other. I, I, I love what Matthew Henry says here. God showed the Philistines the folly of their confidence by making their own swords and spears the instruments of their own destruction and more fatal in their own hands than if they had been in the hands of the Israelites. That's what God can do. They dig a pit, they set a net, and they fall in it themselves. And that's what Saul finds, the Philistines fighting and killing each other, running away in fear. And moreover, God caused the ranks of the soldiers of Israel to swell. He brought back those who were hiding in the hills, those who had fled and would not even be associated with Saul anymore. They come down from the hills and join the pursuing army. And there were even some of the Hebrews, it says, who had joined the Philistines. They deserted the army and went with the, those who, who had the power that they, that, that they seemed to think the Philistines had. But as God begins to act, they switch sides again and join the Israelites. And they pursue the Philistines and they drive them back. A location is given, Beth Avon, that's, that's, uh, that, that's back towards Philistines' country. And they're driven back out of Israel. What's notable here is what I called to your attention at the very beginning, that in verse 23, it says that the Lord saved Israel that day. It wasn't Saul. It wasn't his armies. It wasn't Jonathan either. It wasn't Jonathan who acted in faith and with boldness. It's God who delivered Israel that day. This is how God has acted all throughout Scripture and really all throughout history. God, in this historical context, intervened and with his mighty hand raised up against the enemy, he scatters them, using the Israelites, surely, but he is the one who scatters the enemy. Well, let's pause and consider again. The Philistines trusted in military might and the Israelites were afraid of that military might, showing a misplaced confidence. I want to also call your attention again to Saul's misplaced confidence. And his confidence was misplaced because he was seeing that he might be able to manipulate God. Just like the Israelites had done earlier when they took the ark into battle and it was lost, 
Saul was doing the very same thing. He brought the Ark of the Covenant there as if God was in the box, that he could trot it out whenever he wanted so that he could gain God's presence and God's favor and his power. And Saul was seeking to manipulate God himself, to manipulate the means of grace to gain an advantage. Once more, we can back up and and see our own tendencies in Saul and be warned against a false or misplaced confidence in some ability to manipulate God to gain some advantage. And it can come through in some of the, the most holy sounding ways. Saul called for the priest. He called for the ark of God. He asked to inquire of the Lord. But it wasn't of faith. And so too today we can think God is at our beck and call and that if we do this, then God will do that. If we read, if I read my Bible today, if I go to church today, then God will surely act to my advantage. Now, I pray that you don't get me wrong. I pray that you do read your Bible and that you come to church, but not out of a misplaced confidence, out of some concept that by doing so, that you can obligate God. And that in so doing, you will work it out just right so that you get the deliverance that you want. I read from Revelation earlier, and I'll say again, uh, please read that again. And uh, uh, don't get confused or, or even fearful by the uh, apocalyptic language that is used and the, the very uh, strong imagery that is used. Read it for the letter that it was to a persecuted church that tells that God reigns over all and that he is victorious over his enemy. Read through it and you'll read about God Almighty who is and was and is to come. You read about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is a great king who rides in victory over Satan and the devil you write about, read about the, the war in heaven that cast down Satan, that great serpent of old, the deceiver, the one who wars against the church like a fiery dragon seeking to consume it. But it cannot win. The dragon is defeated, is thrown down, and Satan is defeated and thrown down because God Almighty reigns over all. And in the Psalms that we sang today, the words that, uh, that come over and over again is that, is that God is in his name we will boast. There's the proper confidence. There is the confidence of the Christian life that the Lord is reigning over all all of the enemies of the earth, no matter how mighty they seem, God reigns eternally 
over all of those enemies. Superior. But I pray that in the context of this battle, and in the context of that, that larger battle that is God's waging war against Satan, that you would look to Christ, that you would see God Almighty, that you would be inspired by the words that we sing and lay up in our hearts about his victory and his power, and that you would boast in his name. Apostle John says it this way, Greater is he that is in us than is he that is in the world. Greater is God than the enemy. Pray that you would boast in him, that your confidence would be placed in him, that you would see him as the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Well, God, we do bow before you and confess our hope and confidence being in you and in you alone. We pray that you would save by your right hand, by your gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. We pray, O oh God, that you would be shaping us, sanctifying us of the many things that we fear and the misplaced trust that often entangles our hearts. Instead, O oh Lord, help us to remember that you are God Almighty and that you have saved us by Jesus Christ and worked by your spirit to set us free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll close by singing some from Psalm 118, Selection D. The power of God is confessed here, even over death itself. Let's sing our praise to the Lord, standing and singing Psalm 118D.